Welcome back to another episode of the Development by David podcast with me, your host, David McIntosh. This week, my guest is Joe Seddon. Joe Seddon is the founder of Zero Gravity. He's an Oxford alumni and he's a recipient of Forbes 35 Under 35. Join us today as we dive into the life of Joe, a British technology entrepreneur and social mobility innovator. Born in Leeds and raised in West Yorkshire from a single parent family, Joe Seddon comes from humble beginnings and has risen become the founder of Zero Gravity, a company that supports low-income students in reaching their full potential. We also delve into the limiting beliefs that someone from a lower socioeconomic background might have, the unwritten rules in the workplace, and why your network is your net worth. We'll explore the intersection of personal responsibility and social mobility. We also discuss entrepreneurship, risk aversion, and how Joe's lower socioeconomic background has affected his nature to be disruptive. Now over to Joe to tell his amazing story. Thank you for tuning into this episode and the 75 others that precede it. People like you grow this platform. You allow me to speak to my idols and hopefully I can repay you with some insight and some knowledge that they bring. I really hope you enjoy this episode. Please share it in a WhatsApp group chat or to your colleagues or to your boss or to your sister or to your boss's sister. It's people like you that really, really, really grow this platform and I'm really appreciative of you. But for now, Joe Seddon. And just really quickly before we kick off, I want to remind you of a brand that I've been using every single day. That is Vibe, the meal replacement shake. You might remember Gordon Belch being on the podcast, one of their co-founders. It was such a well-played and well-received episode. I've been using Vibe every single day. It's such a quick and convenient breakfast that I have, and it's interlaced with such amazing um, nutrient profiles, but also nootropics. If you don't know what nootropic is, it's basically a cognitive enhancer. My mates, Gordon and Rory, have taken this company worldwide both operating in Australia and the UK and their mission is to provide world-class nutritional products that are convenient and affordable and given back to disadvantaged communities. You know my work in the social mobility landscape really aligns with this so that's why I have partnered with them on the podcast. They've got a few flavours but my favourite is the vanilla. I use it just for a quick and convenient breakfast in the morning. Provides me with all the nutrients I need to set me up for the day and keeps me full until lunch. I've been going back into the office most recently and You know what it's like getting up early at 7am trying to cook something, it's just hard work. Or you go out to the shops and spend five, six pounds on a coffee and a croissant that doesn't really fill you the same. This has been a godsend. So thank you everyone at Vibe for sending me your products. Um, You can get it for as little as £1.50 per meal and you can use code DMAC for 15% off, whether on the UK or Australian website. You can find them at vibe.com.au or (laughs) vibe.co.uk. Joe said, and welcome to the Development by David podcast. How are you? I'm good, mate. How are you? I'm good. It's so funny when I always like start a conversation by saying, how are you? Because the listeners know we've had a preamble chat for like 15, 20 minutes before we've hit record. It's just just natural for me to ask you how you are. I don't know what you're talking about. I've never met you before. I've got no idea who you are, mate. <laughs> I was saying this before we hit record. Like, I've joined many calls with you in the past um, through some of the partnerships with, with our work. And I've left every single one of those calls saying to other colleagues, oh my God, I need Joe on the podcast. And every time uh, they've agreed and I finally reached out to you and you were like more than happy to come on. So mate, thank you so much for uh, yeah jumping on the podcast today. 
Well, I'm not sure what magical spell I've put on you over these uh, Zoom calls. It, it's probably because I've got that auto-enhanced feature on that all of these uh, video uh, <laughs> recording uh, softwares have on where it sort of glows you up behind the camera. So if it's an early morning call, you haven't quite had time to have a shower, get your hair sorted out, it makes you look around 25% better. So I'll, I'll say that's what it is. And sometimes it's like the dog ear filters uh, you, you put on. So you really impressed me with the amount of filters it, you have. It, it, it must be that. Well, I, I took inspiration from that poor American lawyer who had that cat filter stuck on for around an hour, which disrupted that case. <laughs> I just seen that today. I could not stop laughing. I thought that was a prank. I didn't realize that was real. Yeah, of course it's real. Look, look there's loads of people who, even with the pandemic, that they still haven't quite adjusted to the new norm of a uh, video calls. Like I, I still have issues all the time with people. You no, know, to use the uh, the pandemic phrase. You no, know, you're on mute. It's uh, it's still an issue. There must be someone with that tattooed on them somewhere. Probably, but I don't want to know who that person is. <laughs> Joe said, before we go off on a tangent about your on mute tattoos, I need to do the preliminary traditional intro. Who is Joe said in today in 2022? The last podcast of the year, by the way. Yeah, no, it's it's great to be uh, on the last podcast of the year. Who's Joe said in 2022? Um, I don't know. <sighs> Entrepreneur, founder, Yorkshireman. Um, hopefully not in that order. I'd probably put Yorkshireman first, being a proud, proud Yorkshire boy. But um, yeah, I think we, we met around a year ago, didn't we, in terms of you know, I was running Zero Gravity, you know, partnering with uh, KPMG. Um, and we were talking about you know, what more could we do to really you know, propel the best talent from around the country, from social mobile backgrounds into the best uh, best careers. And I think there's just a natural connection from from there, right? For, as two young people who'd sort of been on very different journeys, but with that sort of uniting theme of having to sort of defy the odds to to get where we uh, get where we got to. So I think that was the initial link between us, right? Hundred percent, mate. And talking about that theme, let's go back to your your origin story, your genesis story, and unpick the journey that you've been on from Morley to Million Pounds Investments. Where did it all begin? So you write the title of the episode already there, Morley to Million Pound Investment. I might uh, might use that one. Um, so yes, yeah, so I grew up in Morley, which is a small town in the UK between Leeds and Wakefield. Um, it's one of those towns that political analysis would say is you know, part of the, the Red Wall or a post-industrial uh, town. But for me, it was it was home. And I, I grew up in a, in a single parent family. I was raised by my mum, who's a speech therapist in the NHS and got two younger siblings. And I, I sort of lived a, an ordinary existence of a sort of uh, young British boy. I was you now obsessed with football. That's what I wanted my... Uh, career to be and probably by the age of 12 13 found out that i wasn't going to quite uh, make it or when i say quite make it didn't get anywhere close uh, but that was my sort of first passion and love in life and my sort of second passion was technology and like many people our age you know, i grew up in a, an era where these fantastic digital technologies were disrupting our lives uh, in both positive and negative ways whether it was you know facebook becoming the predominant social uh, network or the iPhone coming out when we were sort of you know 12 years old or all these incredible apps you know Snapchat Twitter and then sort of moving into university and seeing things like Deliveroo and an Uber and I was obsessed with all these great technologies and I was one of those weirdos who after school every day used to get home and listen to these podcasts about what was going on in Silicon Valley and I kind of hoped that you know, one day that I could be someone who 
is involved in this technical revolution as well. Um, and yeah, I, I made the, my way from the state schools in in West Yorkshire to Oxford University, which was a, a huge, huge leap. And no one in my family had been to Oxbridge before. And the application process was incredibly uh, mysterious. I didn't quite know what I was doing at any point. I managed to get an offer and, uh, and I studied PP at university and um, and went from there, really, in terms of founding, founding Zero Gravity. Given that you didn't have anyone in your immediate or wider circle that had ever been to Oxbridge, did you ever feel like a boy like you didn't belong in a place like that or shouldn't apply for a place like that? What gave you the inner belief to take that leap? Did you have any support from charities or like kind of career kind of counsel counselors at school, uh, career advisors or counselors at school? Like what, what instilled that belief in you at that age? I think I was someone who was always you know, ambitious and you know, determined uh, from a from a young age. I I wanted to be someone who kind of defied the the norm of of where I was from. But at the same time, Oxbridge wasn't really on the radar for me until I got my GCSE results when I was sixteen. And it was only at that point I thought, you know, maybe I do have what it takes to go to somewhere like that. But the issue was that I didn't have anyone in my kind of network who'd who'd been before. You know, whether it was a family member. Very few people from my school attended. So I was very much starting from scratch in terms of having the, the inside track of, of what you need to get into an institution like that. Now, the internet is incredible in terms of leveling the playing field for information. You can Google search you know, how to get into Oxford University or what is an Oxford interview like. But the, the internet doesn't replace being able to sit down with someone who's been through it themselves it can level the playing field in information but it can't level the playing field in terms of giving you the inside track and that's what i really missed and um and yeah i found the interview process really really tough it was a completely alien environment i very much felt out my depth at, at every point like even on some of the basics in terms of like what do you wear how do you comport yourself do you hide your accent those were all issues that i was grappling with even before getting to the sort of academic uh, content that you that you need and and my first interview went so badly that I thought I completely fucked up my entire chance of going and and it was only that that made me actually relax the sort of thought that actually I've already messed it up I've got nothing to lose at, at this point so I'm I count my lucky stars that my first interview went that badly that I was able to relax because otherwise I definitely wouldn't have wouldn't have got in and making the geographical relocation to to Oxford how did your environment and morally differ from that of Oxford? Yeah, it's completely different. I think one of the uh, things which isn't really spoken about very much in terms of people's social mobility journeys is that everyone always talks about the imposter syndrome of stepping into a, a new environment that you're not quite part of and having to deal with their different traditions and and not quite feeling part of it. But the, the, the other part is also leaving where you're from and I, I remember leaving West Yorkshire and 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 people in a way thought I was kind of selling myself out like there, there really is a sort of cultural north-south divide in terms of when I told people I was going to you know, Oxford for university you know people thought it was you no know, incredible they sort of couldn't understand how the application process worked and thought it was a great opportunity but at the same time there was a sense in which I was sort of selling my soul I was sort of going to you know, uh, live with all the poshos now and I was going to leave behind my 
northern roots and um in, in some ways that's true like in, in terms of my life now and then i've lost my accent a little bit like if you sort of spoke to me you wouldn't necessarily think i was you know, from the north of england straight away and sort of you know, i've changed the way i act i suppose over time in a way so it's it, it's not like it, that's not a um a fair analysis but at the same time it was it was tough thing to to take because not only do you not necessarily feel at home in the environment you're stepping into but you also leave a and part yourself behind at the same same time. I relate to that a lot. I feel social mobility guilt at times for working at a corporation and often taking trips to London and often exposing to new tastes and traits that those from my background typically didn't uh, adopt. Have you noticed that your tastes and traits have changed because of your experience at Oxford and do you think they were genuine trans like do you think there was a genuine transformation in taste and traits or do you think it was more like like survival of the fittest like trying to mask or uh kind of mirror their traits just to fit in I think I, I've like inevitably like some of the ways I behave and some of my interests have, have changed just because of the nature of the people who I spend my time with but at the same time I've, I've always tried to keep myself rooted where I'm from but I, I'm almost having to like over adjust and overcompensate for that like it's when we did our intro for instance and I mentioned straight away I was from Yorkshire that's probably a, a natural narrative that's seared into me that I need to reinforce with everyone where I'm from because I don't want to lose that as part of my identity so I always bring it up straight away you know sub subconsciously and uh, I, I think it's tough because you know I'm, I'm really proud of, of where I'm from um, but at the same time and I don't want to sugarcoat that. It's, it was really difficult in many ways growing up in Morley in terms of the, the lack of, of opportunity uh, a lot of the time. And, and as you sort of asked earlier, like there was no real support from any corporates, universities, social mobility charities, because in a lot of small towns in the UK, you just get forgotten about. And if, if you grow up in a, a great city like you know, London or Manchester or Birmingham, often there's support on tap, you know, whether it's from your school or employers or universities. But if you're in a small town, often there's nothing in person whatsoever. And, and that is what really planted the seed for zero gravity for me in terms of I wanted to use technology to change that in terms of if you were growing up in a small town in the UK, you weren't you know, locked away from opportunity by the geography in which you you lived in oh I, I love it joe and when i've been asked to define social mobility my definition would be the amount of ease or friction between an individual and their access and awareness to opportunity but for me the awareness is such a, a catalyst for the access like we hear about a quality of opportunity it is a kind of, kind of buzzword phrase that's thrown around all the time but there needs to be access and this sorry there needs to be awareness of that when you were in uh, in Yorkshire, did you have any role models that were kind of reaching for the stars that perhaps subconsciously or vicariously kind of rubbed off in your motivation? Like for me, having role models or having mentors and having people that came from a background like mine and, uh, and grew that into something became such a huge inspiration for my own motivation and my own trajectory. Did you have any of that around you? Yeah, I think for, for like many people who they grew up um, with a sort of strong family unit, it was it was my grandma. Um, in terms of you know, from a young age, she took a you know, interest in me, you no know, words, and you know, give me interesting things to read. Would talk to me about current affairs. Would always sort of push me to take on new 
opportunities and it was only by having that that someone like that in my sort of family unit that I was able to sort of sort of lift my head up and and look at what was what was out there above and beyond was in my immediate environment so I was incredibly lucky in in that regard and I I think it is a big issue because I, I use the word luck there and it is luck but um if, if you if you live in a, a great city like London where you're surrounded by opportunity every single day it's 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 no surprise that that makes you more audacious or or bolder and, and gives you ideas and inspirations because it's come it's constantly on tap like if you grow up in a low-income uh, family in tower hamlets you can be living in a really difficult situation in terms of like maybe you're living in relative poverty there's no gang crime nearby but if you're getting the tube every day past canary wharf and you know, when you're walking to school, you know, you're meeting people whose parents are working in lots of different types of job roles. And you sort of constantly hear these inspirational stories of people who've defied the odds, whether it's starting their own company or moving to a different country. Then that rubs off in your mentality over time. And one of the big difficulties, I think, outside the urban hubs is that kind of uh, culture just isn't, isn't there. Uh, because of the the nature of places being uh, geographically locked off from the rest of the country with poor infrastructure um, and and the way that sort of reinforces the way that cultures work. Um, So I was lucky that I had somebody in my family unit who was an inspiration to me, but it was luck at the end of the day. And uh, I think one of the things that we all need to work on is how do we take luck out of the equation and make sure that ambitious, talented people can can get where they want to go. And the early inspiration provided by your grandma, do you think that was amplified once you were dragged and dropped into Oxford where probably everyone around you uh, mustered great inspiration and were at a high-performing caliber? Do you think that turned that up um, to some degree? Absolutely. This is the secret source of Oxbridge, which they don't really talk about publicly, which is like, of course, Oxford and Cambridge are incredible academic institutions where you get loads of support you know, there's fantastic lecturers and you know, fantastic facilities like that's all true but the, the real magic source of oxbridge is the way it shapes your mentality in terms of you turn up on day one and you're told straight away that you know you are the to use the awful phrase the brightest and the best and that you no know, the people in this room are going to go on to lead companies you know, sit in the cabinet you know make disruptive academic uh, leap forwards and and that is constantly also reinforced by the people around you who believe that about themselves believe that about their friends that everybody's you know, working really hard and, and that just sort of changes your mentality over time in terms of things that growing up in Morley would have seemed completely out of reach or ridiculous ideas just kind of became the norm and and that is the sort of secret source of, of Oxbridge how it creates that audacious mindset amongst the people who are part of the the institution it's it's, it's that sort of cultural component which you, you cut it's difficult to describe you can't quite put your finger on it but you can kind of tell when someone's been to oxbridge in terms of the way they comport themselves and talk and and act and and that is the massive value out of those universities and i find it strange or bewildering that diff- some words have different semantics within the environments that they're used. So one of the words that you used there was was disruptive. Disruptive within Oxbridge had positive connotations, but disruptive back home in, in Yorkshire or Ayrshire, where I'm from, has very negative con- uh, connotations. 
Like I'm told not to be disruptive, not to ask for more, not to take more than what I'm given. And it's the same with risk. Risk, where I'm from and maybe where you're from, is has so many negative connotations wrapped around it. Did you feel that some of these fetishized words meant different things with an Oxbridge than they did at home, like risk, like disruption, etc.? And can you think of any other examples? Yes, it, it, it kind of shows you how um, the, the, the concepts and, and the culture are informed by the type of people who tend to inhabit the university, right? Like you, you refer to, to risk there. Like I think one of the things that that Oxford is is very good at is increasing people's tolerance for risk because you're you know, constantly told to try new things, you know, embrace failure. And um, and that's all well and good if you're someone from an affluent background where failing at something means you can just restart and go again. But like like you know, David, if you if you're from a, a part of the country um, where you're you know, you're, you're disadvantaged, you no know, failure can be catastrophic in terms of there can be no coming back from it sometimes. So I, I do think it's incredibly socially loaded, but at the same time, I do think there is a, there's a huge power. Uh, power to it as well and now I, I feel that the kind of you no know, cultural lessons that I took from university have been useful in my own life like I did need to increase my risk tolerance um, as I've as I've grown older and I don't think I would have started a company out of university if I didn't have a, a high risk tolerance but at, at the same time like, like you said it's easy to have a high risk tolerance if you're from an affluent background. I love that. I love the kind of point you made around failure because if you come from a lower socioeconomic background, you don't have the material. You don't have yeah. You don't have the material cap, the capital or the material to to offset some of the failures that you might face. Um, like your your organization, your business not taking off could mean that you don't eat or you can't pay rent. Um, I've been reading into the concept of luxury beliefs, and it's basically like beliefs that are held by different people within uh, different social classes, and one being. I've been looking at the kind of reading about some 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 essays around like the diversity for net zero or the net zero transition, and it's important to know that, like for example, some people from a lower socioeconomic background might not be able to afford solar panels or EVs, but those from a, a kind of more affluent background might be able to make those changes. But culturally, that could create a divide because there's expectations of those from a more affluent area that are kind of perpetuated and, and imposed on those from a lower socioeconomic background. And much like COVID with vaxxers and anti-vaxxers, it can create like a stark culture divide. And so, so, so the reason I'm asking that question was, were there any opinions or beliefs that you had that were polarizing to those of your peers at Oxford? And did you ever notice a stark divide between you and some of your classmates culturally because of that? Yeah, I think, I think there was a big cultural divide around questions of sort of belonging and identity you know, as, as someone who sort of grew up in a, a small norm um I, I sort of put, put a big amount of value in sort of community institutions whether those be you know football club or like your local pub or like you know school that you you went to and um but I, I, oxford was you no know, very sort of you no know, metropolitan cosmopolitan environment and a liberal with a, a small l and the ideas of the identity and belonging are often seen as kind of almost like semi-dangerous uh, concepts and you know, associated with nationalism or, or bigotry and I, I used to sort of speak to people at university and I was I was like you know 
describing some of the views of you know, people in the area where I grew up, and it's like you, you can't you can't automatically assume that people who have a different view to you are you know, bigoted. Um, like you have to understand that you know, globalization, for instance, is disruptive, and you, know, you may see that as a as a good thing, and maybe overall it is a good thing. But in in terms of the disruption that can cause in certain communities, it's no wonder that someone in Morley sees that as a as a threat or a danger when it's you know, led to so much you know, economic dislocation. You know, a city that was once you know, fantastic you know, and, and part of the in UK industrial powerhouse and you know, turned into a, a completely different place. So those are just sort of some of the small examples. But but one of the things I saw at university which I didn't like was that there was sometimes a, an intolerance towards you know, views or, or people from know different parts of the UK that weren't quite as you know, cosmopolitan as London and university uh, cities and 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 that's something I think that needs to change because any any sort of polarization around those cultural questions you know, is not good for anyone at the end of the day definitely not so you're still at Oxford you're still studying when you um, developed the premise for zero gravity because it wasn't initially called zero gravity uh, you, you developed another platform that essentially merged into zero gravity. Am I right? Yeah. So I had the idea at, at university. Um, I like when I got to the end of my degree, I had you know, some offers for various corporate jobs, you know, working at hedge funds, corporate law firm. But I was like, I don't, I don't want to do this. And no, I want to try and build my own tech startup. And I just reflected on the problems I'd faced in life, and I thought, no, this is a good place to start and try and build something for my younger self almost um so i had the idea at university but um but when i graduated i actually moved back to west yorkshire um to, to launch because uh, and i had no money i had 200 quid left over from my student loan uh, so i had to move back in with my mum sister and brother to uh to to get going um whilst all my friends moved to, to london which was was difficult in and of itself because all my friends were moving into the sort of uh nice corporate lifestyle and having their own flats and they're going to cool places in London and I was sort of back home where I started so that was that was a difficult adjustment but I believe so passionately in what I was doing and and like you said David initially I I kept the scope quite small in terms of I had this grand vision that I was going to use technology to change the way that talent was identified and then uh, propelled into these top institutions but I knew I couldn't do that with 200 quid so at the beginning I launched a platform which solely concentrated on getting people into Oxton Cambridge University from low-income backgrounds because that was the ecosystem which I knew best um, it was a big problem for those universities and then tactically I also knew there was a huge amount of media uh, pressure on the universities and interest in their admissions and I thought if I can really prove that what I'm doing works it's going to be a great way to sort of get uh, traction that would be difficult to get if I started focusing on a different set of institutions so there was a kind of a tactical to it as well um, but yeah that's how I got got started. What were some of the results that you saw in your proof of concept um, just for what, what, what kind of results did you see within that small selective pool that you first started with? Did it prove to be a success? Yeah, well, fa thankfully, it, thankfully it did. Um, but th there was there was sort of two two things that I, I did at the beginning, um, which which really helped build the organisation. The, the first thing is I thought deeply about how do we identify 
the talent in the UK state sector that we want to support. I, I saw that all of these organizations were grappling with different metrics, terminology for defining the low-income, socially mobile people. And whilst that was useful, I thought none of these people are actually putting themselves in the shoes of the, the end user, which is a sort of 16, 17-year-old at school who doesn't regard themselves as a socially mobile person or a whining participation student. They just see themselves as a 16 or 17-year-old, and they want convenience. So these people are used to using apps like you know tiktok and instagram like they don't want to have to go through some you know huge due diligence process about their their background so i, I sort of designed a, an app where people could sort of sign up in a, a 60 seconds really and and from that sign up process we would pull various bits of data that would algorithmically allow us to you know, build a profile of someone's background and their performance so for instance um, by putting in the home address, we could look at the socioeconomic status of people on that street, how many people go to university in that local address, crime rates. But when they put in their school, we could work out what's the Ofsted rating of that school, how much progress the students make there, and uh, and also compare their grades uh, to the average person at their school. And, and and by sort of designing that process that only took 60 minutes for us, sorry, 60 seconds for a student to complete, uh, but gave us those really powerful uh, data profiles, we were able to um, identify lots of top talent. The people who, on paper, you might not necessarily think are the people who should be going to Oxford and Cambridge University. But actually, if you, if you have a good picture of their background, these are the perfect people people who don't have straight A's at school, but they've got a, mixtures, a mixture of A, B's and C's, but the average person at their school is is failing and they come from a, a town with limited opportunities. So I put a lot of effort into designing that system that actually found the talent in the first place. And then the second part was, you know, once you've identified a talent, how do you actually get them in to these institutions? And I just focused on giving people the inside track. And what that meant was you know, connecting them with a, a mentor who was one step ahead of them on the journey and then building technology around that that made it as easy as possible to connect with their mentor and kind of structured their journey in a way in which they could take small steps every week towards their end goal so it wasn't rocket science in a way in terms of the concepts like the ultimate concepts quite simple find the best talent and propel them into the institutions but i put a lot of effort into designing a user experience that i thought young people wanted to use and and that was what made the platform so effective because we had people doing thousands of hours of mentoring sessions on this on this platform. Like you know, the first cohort of students we had, we had 150-ish uh, students from low-income backgrounds applying to Oxbridge. But all these people were doing like you know, 10, 15, 20 mentorship sessions over a six-month period. And, it, and it's, it was that engagement that was driving the impact in terms of you know, our ability to actually get them in. Um, and then and then the stories that came out of that was what really propelled the organization forwards, not just the headline numbers in terms of how many people from our cohort were getting offers, but the actual personal stories behind them in terms of people who, again, you would think looking at their, their background, this is not someone who should be going to Oxford and Cambridge. This is not the stereotype, but actually it's somebody who's clearly incredibly talented and they just needed a kind of, they push in the right direction to, to get in there, and that's what the platform offered them. Joe, I'm playing post-it note rain. I don't know what I want to use as my next question because so many come to mind. 
I love how user experience was one of the most prominent guiding principles that you wanted to follow. How did you ultimately engage young people to get onto the app in the first place? Because when I look at a lot of the social mobility charities and their offerings, they're, they're, they're kind of pointed at aspiring adolescents or aspiring teenagers or aspiring students. But a lot of people don't quite yet know they can be aspiring because they don't have that visibility of careers around them. They don't have any success stories from their local area. They just don't quite believe they can be that. How did you, how did you nudge people onto the, 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 the platform in the first place? I'm really curious to know about that. Yeah. Well, the first thing I thought about was brand. Um, like, like you, I'd, I'd seen the universities, employers, various charities, they try and appeal to young people and fail uh, dramatically. And I kind of reflected on why that was. And, and the ultimate reason uh, in my mind was you had all these institutions uh, with their institutional brands trying to speak to 16, 17-year-olds who'd even ne never heard of them or thought they were out of reach. So like, how do you expect someone to behave in that scenario? And and, and that's, that's why I wanted to build a brand for Zero Gravity that was was not institutional. It didn't sound academic. It didn't sound like it was an adult speaking down to you. Um, but it, it felt like a, a young person. They had a really clear, youthful attitude and an attitude of you know, ambition, defiance, being bold. So I, I deliberately designed to appeal to young people and, and not really feel like a social mobility brand, just feel more like the kind of tech product that young people would want to use every day. Um, so yeah, put a lot of effort into designing. Design that was a big decision because uh, when I when I sort of raised my first sort of uh, round of investment uh, to really build the organisation, one of the first things I actually spent money on was working with a really top uh, small brand agency to build the brand. And I remember at the time I had questions of, you know, why do you want to spend you know, fifteen thousand pounds on creating a logo and colour scheme? And I was like, look, it's it's. It's, it's not about creating a logo or color scheme. It's about defining who we are and how we want people to feel about us. And, um, and, and that was incredibly important to me in terms of building a brand that young people could, could relate to. Um, I mean, in terms of actually like finding them, um, social media was, was, was the first go-to. Like I, I knew that we wouldn't be able to work with schools at the beginning because you no, know, we didn't have credibility yet. We were the new kids. On the block, but I knew social media was a great way to move past the gatekeepers and get straight into the phones of young people. So we just used you no know, Instagram, Facebook, um, TikTok didn't exist back when I started, um, but we just used social media to identify students, and and that was really great because it allowed us to sort of build our first uh, cohorts, but also allowed us to access a different type of person, which is not not the sort of you know, super academic. A student who has their mind fixed on a particular institution and knows they want to get there. We were able to reach that person who is ambitious, they're talented, but they don't quite know if they've got it in them to, to do it. And they're, they're not thinking about applying to a particular institution. Um, so it allows us to identify a different type of, of person. And, and I was passionate about doing that because to link it back to our previous discussion, I know a lot of uh, young people living in small towns across the UK kind of fit into that demographic. Like very few people in Morley grow up thinking, I want to go to Oxbridge. And very few people in Morley grow up thinking, 
that I'm you know, super academic and I'm the B's and E's and I'm going to be able to do it. Like People need that kind of vote of confidence in themselves and they need to have their ambition and curiosity um, sparked. And, and that's why I think social media can be so powerful in terms of getting through to a different type of person. Joe, do you remember the first point that you reflected on the journey so far and said to yourself, ah, this is why I do what I do? Was there a significant pivot or life-changing experience for one of the mentees or a specific milestone that you crossed where you were kind of reaffirmed that that you chose the right journey after Oxford? Um, like I, I've always been a bit of a data guy in, in all honesty. So the thing that really mattered to me was actually showing that the platform worked. Uh, we, we did some really boring but useful uh, randomized control trials with UCAS where they essentially looked at zero gravity students on the platform and find the statistically comparable university applicants on paper and like looked at the different outcomes and that proved that our platform actually really did work even when you compared like for like and was having a dramatic impact and that was really important to me uh, because I always wanted to have that kind of scientific rigor about what we were what we were doing I've been just seeing seeing the scale up of, of the numbers as well and they're going from supporting 150 people when I was doing this out of my bedroom to now supporting you know, 5,000 students every year into university. Like That is really powerful for me because even though it sounds a bit dry and, and it's just data, like that shows that actually there's 5,000 people behind that number. And if you can continue to scale and create something uh, create something huge nationwide, like that's going to have a dramatic impact on actually the people who you know, go into these institutions, whether it's Oxbridge, other universities, apprenticeships, corporate careers. If you can do something at scale, you can change things far quicker than you imagine in terms of the culture of these institutions. So that that was really motivating for me. And, and of course, some of the stories coming out of the platform were unreal. Like very quickly, I was meeting these students and I was thinking like, gosh, these people are so much brighter and uh and, and more interesting than than i was uh, at their age and um and, and we had a number of them who were sort of profiled by different media organizations and i thought that was great because not only did that put the zero gravity brand up in lights but it enabled that young person to also turn into an advocate and ambassador themselves for their no particular no, identity whether it was their hometown or their ethnicity or something else about them. Like we had a, a student called uh, Millie Ayres two years ago who was from a, a traveling showman uh, community. Um, so it's a community that I think is often overlooked in discussions of, of social mobility. You know, travelers have some of the worst education outcomes of any um, any ethnic uh, group. And, and and she was someone who you know, dropped out of, of school, uh, did her GCSEs at home, didn't get no incredible and the best grades in the world in terms of straight A stars, but was someone who was a clear overperformer. And she used our platform to learn uh, Latin and get into Oxford study classics. And that was one of those stories which was like, wow, it's a sort of pinch yourself story in terms of so many angles of it that are just you know, crazy in terms of defying the odds. But but Millie's now become an incredible advocate for and they're traveling showmen around the country and, and shows to know young women in that community like what's what's possible you know, define the stereotype and introducing people outside that community to the community as well and it's if we can do that for thousands of, of people i think that's going to be massive in terms of the culture change as well that we spoke about and when you can see people like you 
succeeding and still speaking in the same uh, kind of uh, voice, whether it's the accent or the tone or, or whatever it is. Like that's far more inspirational than seeing a sort of fifty-year-old CEO on the screen. And I think by doing that, we'll move away from the accent biases that we have. I've heard stories where at other firms where partners didn't put colleagues in front of uh, senior clients because their accent was too risky uh, because they were from like Liverpool or something like that. And I think the more the more representative uh, examples that we have of talent from different parts of the UK with different accents will be less of an accent bias within the workplace and the wider community. Yeah, and that's ridiculous, right? Because there's actually quite a, a few studies out there that show that people with uh, you know, strong accents are, are regarded as more trustworthy uh, subconsciously. The people assume that if you've got a, an, an accent rather than you know, speaking in uh, you know, pure Shakespearean English, that you're more trustworthy. I think because, going back to our discussion earlier, accents are kind of associated with you know, belonging and identity, and, and that has a, a sort of trust component. Uh, to it rather than being somebody who is almost uh, you know, belonging less or accent less and could sort of shape shift into to anything. So uh, the strong accents are, are are good in terms of putting those people in front of uh, front of clients. But I, I, I think I think I've always believed is that with these discussions over accent and and other things, it's really difficult to change people's biases. And, and of course, there's work that can be done, but the, the easiest way to stop accent being an issue in the workplace is just to get more people with accents into the workplace. 100%. You can put people through as much you know, implicit bias training as you want, but things are never going to change unless you can get the kind of critical mass of people into the workforce you know, from those backgrounds. So that's what I've really kept Zero Gravity resolutely focused on. And creating a platform that actually works and gets people into these institutions because once you do that, the cultures change dramatically. Um, like I've, I've seen it myself in terms of at Oxford, like when I was a student there, it was roughly 50-50 in terms of state and private schools. And nowadays it's more like 70-30 um, and like one in four of all of the diverse uh, students starting at Oxford now are coming through the uh, Zero Gravity platform. So we've helped sort of drive that change. And I, I've been back to the university recently and, and the culture has changed like really clearly in terms of um, just the kind of the feel of the place. Like it feels far more uh, diverse than it did back when I was a, a student. And that is just a result of the fact there's more students there from backgrounds like mine than there was when I was a student. So you've got to stay focused on on the talent and getting people in. Um, they're trying to kind of treat the symptom rather than the cause is not going to get you anywhere. In addition to accent, are there any other invisible barriers to social mobility that you see from your point of view? I think there's, there's loads of barriers. The reason I called zero gravity, zero gravity was because my understanding of, of of the barriers is that academics like to sort of split them up into separate chunks, whether it be you know, economic barriers and then you know, network barriers, information barriers. But ultimately, all of these things are interrelated. Like if you um, don't have access to a great network and uh, you're not going to a top performing school, and you don't have very much money, that is going to affect your confidence and your motivation over time. So it's, it's not right to think of these things as separate 
causes. Everything is connected in a in a cycle, and and in many ways it can feel quite intangible. Like the the metaphor I heard people use uh, was that you know, it felt like they almost had like a gravity pinning them down. And you know some of those things were very substantial things, like not having money, but some of it was just felt like an invisible force. Like no matter what they did, it was never going to be enough. And and that's why I called zero gravity zero gravity because it was all about you no know, taking that force away and allowing someone to buy into that new mentality, which is actually that there's nothing here that's gonna gonna stop me. The the, the sort of master of my own my own fate, and 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 that is a that's a cyclical process. That's about improving people's network, improving their finances, improving their information, access to mentors, and and the ripple effect that has on confidence. Um, but you, you can't split these things into different different causes. It's all it's all interrelated. There's a cliched statement of your network is your net worth. Do you do you totally agree with that? And if so, why? Hundred um, percent. I, I think this is one of the really key parts of social mobility, which hasn't been spoken about enough and i think the reason why it hasn't been spoken about is like a lot of people speak about social mobility through the lens of education and everyone likes to think that education is you know, incredibly meritocratic and everyone knows there's a huge amount of um uh, noise around you no know, grades in school and how do we make sure that you no know, state schools perform as well as private schools in different parts of the country but but networks drive everything when it comes to careers like whether it's having access to someone who you can have a 30 minute chat with who will like you know tell you something that completely changes your perspective on an issue or changes your trajectory in terms of the things that you go out and look at whether it's just having people there to provoke your curiosity and inspiration but i've seen as someone moves moving down to london that network is is everything and when i was growing zero gravity i saw this time and time again you now when that came to Know, raising investment uh, to grow the organization that all came out of me you know, building a network and you know, without that network you know, I wasn't able to do it but once I had that network I, I could and when it came to sort of actually you know, running a business like being able to speak to people who'd you know, done that before and, and grown something from sort of zero to, to, to 100 um, again that came out of having a great network on, 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 on tap and, and that's not something I had when I was sort of 16 or, or 18 and I, I just spill it up over time but I, I think the thing about a network is you only know it's valuable once you've got it and that is why I think a lot of socially mobile people struggle to build a network because they don't have one in the first place and therefore they don't realize how valuable it is and in many ways networking becomes a bit of a dirty term um, like I know if I, if, if I sort of use the word network with my friends who I grew up with people would have sort of associated with horrific sort of corporate networking events where you're sort of uh, you know, going over to people holding a, a glass of uh, Prosecco and having an awkward five-minute conversation. It's kind of seen as a dirty uh, term, but that's actually not what networking's about at the end of the day. It's not. I read a statistic a couple months ago, and it was around different degree classifications from Oxbridge, or maybe it was Cambridge, and, the, and socioeconomic background and... Uh, the likelihood that they would get a graduate job. I think it was like a, an individual from a lower socioeconomic background with a first-class degree from Oxbridge is less likely to get into a graduate job than the equivalent student with a second-class honours 
from the same university but from a more affluent background why would that occur is that related to to, to network do you believe yeah it's 100 related to, to network there's been a big change in graduate employment in the past 20 years where it's become more professionalized in a way you know back in the 1980s was this this big bang in the city of london where all of these finance uh, jobs were sort of uh, opened up to the to the masses and there was sort of the whole uh, sort of derogatory notion of the sort of essex man that came out of that but it's it sort of related to the idea that you know, th those industries were growing very quickly and uh, the people who were you know, ambitious uh, and bold were able to go into those jobs um and and on working jobs who's you know, stereotypically people from those backgrounds never worked in before but in the sort of 1990s and 2000s the sort of hr processes around getting uh, you no know, graduate jobs especially in the london became far more formalized and, and on paper you might think that would make the process more meritocratic but actually whenever you create a process which is complex that is when the inequalities seep in because people who can navigate complexity with access to information with access to network get an inherent advantage and if you think about what it takes to get a, a graduate job today like usually you have to have relevant work experience but how, how do you get relevant work experience and you, you have to start somewhere and and usually it comes out of having a, a network um having that you no know, family member who can you know, do that informal placement uh, for you or can help you through the application process to get an internship at their friend's uh, company so it, it all starts from from there really and and one of the big difficulties i think for students nowadays is getting access to to work experience because all of these job roles are so competitive if you're applying to a major graduate employer that the chances of, of getting in are even lower than the chances of applying to the top universities in this country and if you don't have work experience you're stuffed most of the time and uh, an access to work experience is, is deeply connected to to having a network at the beginning and i'm so glad that you founded a platform that democratizes that and gives people like me or ones like me and ones like you access to mentors and access to counsel and access to support um, I just wish Zero Gravity was a platform that existed when I was applying for university or first applying for my apprenticeship program. Have you seen great effects um, or great testimonials from mentors? Do they get quite a lot of it as well? Yeah, this was one of the things that actually sort of took me by surprise almost in terms of like, when I was first growing the platform, I was an incredibly grateful towards the mentors on, on the platform because those are the people making all the magic happen right i mean i'd sit down with the mentors and actually they would say to me you know thank you so much for founding this platform this is one of the favorite things that i, I do during the week and it sort of made me realize that actually the mentoring isn't just a one-way process it's not just about a mentor disseminating wisdom to a, a mentee like often it also operates the opposite way around as well and like i've mentored myself um in many ways like now i sort of mentor a number of young entrepreneurs and i've spoken to lots of mentors who use our platform and 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 really mentoring is one of the best things you can do for your own personal development and growth because they have to you know take a position of responsibility you have to think about someone else's future and often that can help you also think about yourself because it, it, it's difficult to sort of sit down and meditate on your own future but it's very easy to do that to someone else right and and it, in many ways that can be a good way to sort of find the principles that are also going to work in your own 
situation as well. And it's also just great in terms of building the sort of soft skills you need to, to get on, like communication, you know, logical thinking, you know, research. So um, I think being a mentor on a zero gravity platform is, is, is good for the personal development and career development of our mentors. And it's one of the parts of our proposition we're continuing to strengthen in terms of you know, giving mentors access to job opportunities, exclusive benefits, um, because ultimately, if we can create a system where everyone has skin in the game, in terms of it's not just about you know, doing the best for yourself and your own career, but then also looking behind you and extending the ladder back. That is ultimately what is going to create the, the scalable solution here. Um, so it, yeah, it's a huge part of what we do. I love it, Joel. I love it. And recently you raised $5 million worth of investment and some of those investors are celebrity names or prolific figures. Have you had the opportunity to meditate on that and reflect on what young teenage tech nerd Joe would have thought of hearing that news if you could go back and tell him? Yeah, I think um, it would have been completely unfathomable. Um, those sort of quantums of of money, like still today, seem like a huge amounts. Like I remember when I moved to Oxford for University and got my first maintenance loan dropped into my bank account, which was like, you no, know, maybe two thousand pounds. Like that was the biggest amount of money I'd ever seen uh before at the time. And it felt like a huge responsibility to have uh that much money. I had to do everything in my power not to spend it all straight away on Freshers Week. Um so so, so yeah, no, it, it it would have been really difficult to 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 picture back when I was sixteen. And I, I was lucky that the idea behind zero gravity was something that resonated with so many people that I was able to build a network over time of these you know, socially conscious investors who read about what I was doing uh, in the press or came across a social media post and, and just wanted to help. And they wanted to help build something for their younger self. And, um, and that's ultimately how I was able to raise the funding to grow my idea by sort of tapping into the network of of sort of um, people who'd been on a similar similar journey. So this is a, a platform for socially mobile people, They're built by socially mobile people and also funded ultimately by them as well, which I think tells a, a nice story because this is uh, it's not about this is not about charity. And the zero gravity is a is a business and ultimately we're growing something that is going to be scalable and sustainable in the future. Um, but but I think that just shows that the talent is uh, something that never goes out of fashion and getting more people from you know, low income backgrounds, social mobile backgrounds into top institutions is not just good for them, but it's good for the in entire society, the institutions they go into and the economy as well. And that's why I ultimately see this as a, as a kind of business issue rather than something that's about philanthropy and, and charity. Now, we're not dealing in charity cases here. We're dealing in people who are incredibly talented. And I need to have the potential unlocked. And I think one of the big issues in this sector is people have seen it too much through the lens of charity historically in terms of it's about doing stuff that you know, looks nice on paper and giving people a little bit of support. But it, it's much bigger than that. Um, and, uh, and, and yeah, that's what we're, what's what I'm trying to build with Zero Gravity. And, and to be transparent and to have a kind of through the keyhole look into the improvement of your life, how has being a tech founder and tech entrepreneur and raising such investment and having such great results 
both I guess financially and um, emotionally with the the, the, the the mentees. How has your life fundamentally changed on this journey? Do you live an exquisite, sexy lifestyle uh, that you see many entrepreneurs living? <laughs> <laughs> um, so like, I, I think my 16 year old self would probably think that I live a exquisite, sexy lifestyle. Now, I'm, I'm not sure about compared to some other entrepreneurs that you see online, like often it is sort of very late nights in the in the office and uh, no missing drinks with friends because I'm buried in in work. But my life has changed you know, dramatically, like being able to work, walk into the office in the morning and there's a team of you know, 20 plus people who are sort of working on the idea that I was back in the day just doing by myself in the bedroom. Like that is just you know, crazy in, in, in many ways. And you have to have to pinch yourself and 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 zero gravity has been a great vehicle of social mobility for myself as well and I, i'm growing alongside the organization and uh, and that is in a way is is quite useful because now i am still even though i'm getting older like a, a user in a way in terms of i'm encountering all of these problems in my life in terms of you know, new things stepping into new environments and i'm thinking like how can i solve this for myself six months ago such that the people coming the behind me on the journey don't have to deal with things in the way that that i did um like for instance i had to rely on a lot of you know, luck and graft to build that network in which i was then able to sort of tap into to raise funding to grow the company like how do we make sure that in the future if you're a founder from a low-income background you now you have you no know, investors and capital that comes to you rather than having to go out there and build a network that you don't currently currently have. So, um, so yeah, my, my life has changed uh, dramatically. Um, and I, I feel very lucky in a way, but I'm, I'm hoping this is just the beginning. Um, and I'm hoping that my story hopefully can inspire other people from small towns across the UK who want to become entrepreneurs because I think too much entrepreneurial coverage is, is dominated by people who who seem to live in completely different realities to a lot of people in this country. That's exactly why I asked that question, Joe. I also want to ask about comparison. The whole cliched statement, like comparison is a thief of joy. If your network has grown into something that's quite lucrative in terms of um, the net worth of maybe some of the people that are around you, and you're still scaling an organization, how do you remove yourself from comparing your net worth to your new kind of upper echelon of contacts? Do you ever compare yourself to the people that you now surround yourself with? Um, yeah, it's an interesting question. Like, you know, We've got some uh, investors uh, in the organization. You know, some of them have become friends who are like you know, billionaires, for instance, and, and that would have like knowing a, a billionaire back when I was you know, even like 21 would have seemed in a completely uh, crazy. Um, I, I don't really sort of compare myself um, to to those people because, like, a they're, they're much older than me, um, which which helps a little bit. And um, and 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 b I, I sort of see them as people who can uh, mentor me and help me on my on 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 my journey. Um, so I, I don't I don't struggle with comparison in in that regard in terms of being surrounded by a network of you know, incredibly wealthy. Uh, individuals, I, I think the people I probably compare myself most to are you know, people uh, the same age as, as me, in, in all honesty. And and, and that is, and I, I think the interesting part there is is kind of the flip side of entrepreneurship, where you know, you're right, David. Like, you know, there's certain things that I I, I get to do 
uh, you know, as part of my role and on my journey, which you know, seem incredibly you know, sexy um, and and cool. But the the reverse side of it as well is is a huge amount of of sacrifice, and I, I don't mean that in the kind of glamorous um, sort of Hollywood story uh, style, but but just the kind of the the, the, the truth and reality, which is you know, sometimes you got to work like late into the night, like you have to sacrifice time with your your friends, you know, building relationships, time with with family. And you know, I sometimes look at you know, other people who've got that component in their life. And I do feel a degree of sort of uh, you know, jealousy about it in terms of, man, I really wish you know, I could you know, spend more time at home with my family. And I, I really wish you know, I could sort of um, maybe take more um, satisfaction out of the small moments in life, like you know, going for a, a walk at the at the weekend but now when you're sort of in a like growing a business like you're constantly on the go and you know you're constantly having your phone pinged with you no know, whatsapps and emails and there's always a problem to to deal with and now i feel incredibly lucky to be in that position where i'm growing something but but it is a huge huge sacrifice to make and and that is the comparison that i mainly make with with people um in terms of like there is definitely a spectrum of 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 what you want in life from then being able to find satisfaction to you know being very kind of you no know, mission orientated and having a really clear purpose and now i've chosen at this point i want to be someone who has a really clear purpose and sort of goes full pelt uh, uh going for that but it, it does definitely have a, a flip side in terms of the sort of life satisfaction element i, I totally resonate with that and I don't know how much that would be amplified by being an entrepreneur, but even being like a podcast host, right? Having my own platform that's not predicated to a nine to five or a salary that's uniquely my own and its outcomes are solely attributed to the success and the the hard work that I put into a platform like this. My mental RAM, if my if my brain was a processor, my mental RAM is always full of podcast work even when i'm not on the laptop writing questions or researching for you or recording with you or editing i'm still thinking about the podcast or where, where could i take it next how could it look in five years or crit- criticizing a, a previous episode i can imagine if you're an entrepreneur or a tech entrepreneur and especially a socially conscious one your brain probably is always consumed by zero gravity because ultimately i don't know how i would how i could not how I could sleep, but I think I would find so much of pressure knowing that the progression of so many young people's lives depend on me and my platform. How do you kind of manage that inner conflict or that inner monologue if you have it? Of social mobility, in a way, um, which I'm completely comfortable talking about because I think people should be authentic about the the positives and negatives of, of everything but the sort of dark side of social mobility is like not only do you have to battle with questions of you of your identity in terms of stepping into new environments that are alien whilst also stepping out of your your old environment but also like your your mindset gets set in a certain way if you're someone who's constantly trying to defy the odds like you do get put on the sort of treadmill of life and then once you achieve one thing you're constantly on to the next and you can never quite stop because you're somebody who started off almost from zero and once you get a taste for 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 being able to you know do new things and get to places that you people like you shouldn't be part of like you you constantly want want more and and that is great in terms of it provides the kind of driving force behind a lot of people and what they do but the, then the flip side of it is it makes it very difficult to stop 
and take satisfaction out of what you're doing. And now I've certainly found found that. But at the same time, like I, I wouldn't change it. Like that is I've just accepted like that is the choice that I've made and that is who I who I am. Um but there's 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 definitely moments where I do sort of have you no know, pangs of uh you no know, not not regret, but you know but just just um almost like you know jealousy in terms of you know, I wish I could do a bit more of of that like I, I wish I could you know go and see Hull City more often at the weekend and I wish I could just sort of you know, sit down for an hour and a half and sort of enjoy a, a, a film without sort of constantly sort of checking my phone and being worried about you no know, missing a, a work call um and again like it, I don't want to sort of cry crocodile tears and make it sound like those are the biggest issues in the in the world but it is a is a sacrifice you have to make and that is the dark side of of social mobility which is completely fine as long as you walk into it with your eyes open a hundred percent it can either be paralyzing or empowering uh because we have seen what the lack of material resources can do to the outcomes of one's life or we know that if your organization was not to be efficacious and to, to, to collapse and you, you you may not be eating or, or your, your your son and daughter in the future if you have them will have a different quality of life because of that decision or because of your your reciprocal um your your own um involvement or your own decision making or your own um motivation or your own discipline I, because i especially right now because i you're, you're back at your family home i still live in my family home i look after my dad the prominent effects of poor social mobility are still so apparent for me i get to see them as, as a byproduct of my everyday so having that dark side of social mobility, in fact, is such a lever for me because I'm I'm one degree away of being reminded of what could happen if I don't lean in a bit further, if I don't accelerate. But the thing is, there's for me, I don't know about you, but for me, there's no there's no limit to that. Um, I don't, there's not like a north star where if I get to X amount, everything's safe. I think for me, I just will have to keep on running and running and running until until I find that. And I don't know if you have a predetermined target or outcome that you're striving for when you know what you have done is self-satisfactory to you do you do you have a milestone that you think ah, i can take the take the foot off the gas when i get to x or when i get to y or when i achieve uh a b or c not really in all honesty like i'm i'm just constantly you know trying to um scale and improve what i've what i've started and uh, there's, there's certain sort of milestones in terms of like you know amount of the members i want to hit on the platform and amount of people we get into universities and careers and then also taking it international uh to more countries but 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 ultimately those are all just steps on the journey and in terms of what i see as the ultimate milestone i don't really know what that looks like in in all honesty um, but I'm not sure I want to know um, because uh, so sometimes if you know where you're going, um, you, you start questioning actually the value of, of, of what you're doing. Well, so we don't quite know where it's all going to lead. Then you just sort of run, run uh, headfirst into the abyss. Um, so, yeah, I don't know where it's going, honestly. I either read or heard a quote on TikTok. And I can't believe I'm reciting this on a podcast, but I, I heard it the other day and it actually stuck with me and re resonated quite, quite quite heavily. It was something along the lines of, the man that will walk further is the man that loves walking, not the man that loves the idea of the destination. And I was like, that's probably the first profound piece of wisdom I've got off of that this app. And I had to note it down because I feel like that describes my own podcast journey. And now hearing hearing the journey that you're on, it, it seems like it describes that too. 
Yeah, and I, I think that's the that's the sort of paradox of of progress in terms of you have to set goals to be able to get anywhere, and, and goals are incredibly important in terms of they've been really clear about you know, I want to achieve X by X date, and having a way to measure your your progress. And it's very difficult to achieve things if you don't create goals and hold yourself accountable to them. But at the same time, like if if you put a goal on such a high pedestal. Um, now that can be quite destructive uh, for exactly the reasons that you said, which is ultimately um, if you want to do anything in life, like you have to genuinely you know, enjoy it and be passionate about it and, 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 and sort of uh, enjoy the ambiguity of not quite knowing where it leads. Because if, if you have a goal and you put it on a pedestal and you achieve it, like that is one of the most disastrous experiences you could ever go through, right? That's how midlife crises uh, start when you sort of achieve a goal and you realize it wasn't quite the thing that you you thought it was um so, so yeah i i just want to sort of sounds a bit uh cliche or weird but i just want to live an extraordinary life in terms of i don't know quite where everything's going i have certain mini goals and milestones you know, over the next couple of years but ultimately where it's going i, I don't know but I, I don't want to know Mate, you are an extraordinary person and you've already lived such an extraordinary life. One of the extraordinary achievements that I saw recently, and I was so delighted to see it, was your Forbes 30 Under 30 mention. How did that make you feel? Um, so that's one of those things that, like, when I started off um, as a sort of 21-year-old trying to grow a business, the, the idea of being on the Forbes 30 Under 30 list would have been completely mind-blowing in terms of some of the other people who've won that award but but also just the kind of like affirmation and credibility it gives you like I, I kind of underestimated actually like how big the brand of 30 under 30 is in terms of like, even my sort of mates who I grew up with who sort of aren't involved in the whole like London entrepreneurial ecosystem like knew about the award and sort of gave it gave it credence so it's, it's kind of mind-blowing in, in that way but at the same time I kind of, I woke up, I remember the morning of actually receiving the award of sort of waking up, my phone's got like, you know, 100 notifications of people messaging me. I'm like, oh God, what's what's happened? Uh, what, 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 have I, what have I done now? And I sort of check my, check my notifications and check my email and, and see it. And um, and I, I remember thinking, like, this is this is sort of great in a way. And this is something that a you 21-year-old know, Joe would have thought was the most unbelievable thing. But it, it didn't sort of give me any real satisfaction in all honesty because i kind of realized it was a fairly artificial moment in terms of i thought this is really great recognition and this is going to be really great for me in terms of helping to open doors and build a network and create credibility around them doing but but actually it's, it's not meaningful in terms of actually who i am as a person and it's like no it doesn't change who i am um and i don't want it to change uh who i am because uh, like i everyone has to sort of have their own narrative around them around themselves and then my narrative now is you know, being an entrepreneur and and founder but you have to sort of uh, realize the the limits and extents of that right and um and yes I'm, i might be in the forbes 30 on the 30 list but i'm also uh, a, a stupid 25 year old who you know gets drunk at the weekend sometimes and procrastinates and doesn't do things correct and, and that's not part of my narrative but that is also part of, of who i am um see so yeah, i i think labels can be quite useful but also can be quite um destructive in a way in terms of your own narrative 
I love how you humanize yourself by talking about like, yeah, you're 25 year old, you procrastinate. Yes, you go out at the weekend. Like, to some degree, do you think? Because when I look on social media, all I see is the very polished, highlighted, perfect versions of entrepreneurs that are waking up at 5 a.m. and meditating, jumping in the sea, doing cold water therapy, working out and eating chia seeds before they log on for the day. But in fact, that's not like that's not a realistic depiction of what an entrepreneur can look like. You mentioned that you go out at the weekend, you sometimes get drunk, you're 25. Like, do you, how, I guess, how have you managed still being a mid 20 something year old despite being the creator and founder and entrepreneur behind uh, such a huge, prolific, socially conscious platform? Like, have you had to sacrifice, have you completely sacrificed your 20s for this? Or are you still? uh still living the kind of life of a mid 20 something year old if if you didn't start this i'm, I'm still i'm trying to live the life of a mid 20s person and, and sometimes i struggle to to do that but um but yeah that, that i i think when people see um very curated versions of entrepreneurs online like i i, I think that's incredibly um it's off-putting in a way because who are these people who get up and meditate at six o'clock in the morning and, and go to the gym every single day? I'm sure they exist. And I know some people you know, do do some of those things, but people who live that perfect existence every day, I think just are, are, are promoting an ideal of perfection, which nobody could possibly reach. And now I think about like, you know, my weekly schedule and sure I'm, I'm somebody who you know, I work hard, I get stuff done, but there's also plenty of days where you no. Know, I'm tired and I you know, hit the alarm for you know, 30, 45 minutes and get an extra 45 minutes in bed when I probably shouldn't do. I should be uh, you know, getting to the getting to the grind straight away. And there's you no know, evenings where um, I'm tired and you know, I should go to the gym, but I decide actually you know, I'm going to you know, get a delivery instead or you know, go out with my mates. Like oh, Everyone's prone to, to natural human uh, impulses around doing things. And again, it, it'd be nice to see a kind of uh, you know, day in the life video or day in the week video that kind of shows that kind of stuff because I, I think it's it's deeply human and it's it's more appealing to people than seeing you know, the perfect individual who you know, gets up at six, meditates, goes to the gym, has a bowl of granola because you know, even though there are clearly some people who do that, 99% of people don't do that and, and can't relate to it and you don't need to do that to be successful or to grow something like there's 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 wisdom in it like you no know, power of meditation sure the power of exercise sure and i buy into both those things but it, it shouldn't be pushed as an ideal that you have to do in order to to be a, an entrepreneur or founder i want to ask a question around the point we mentioned earlier about social mobility guilt now that you're back in yorkshire and have been on the journey that you've been on for many of years how well do you feel that you reintegrate Back with your old mates in your old town, do you feel a bit of a dissonance between you and them? And how do you manage any sort of guilt that may come with that? Well, I, I definitely subconsciously try and uh, adjust to it in terms of a massive code switcher in terms of my accent that comes out far more when I'm back up north surrounded by uh, by northerners. And, um, and one of the things I kind of really appreciate actually about 
um, like towns like Morley is like when I meet up with my mates from back home, like the conversation isn't about work. The conversation is about, you know, football and you no know, music and, and you no know, stuff that we've seen uh, online. And no one's sort of talking too in depth around about working careers because the third, for a lot of people in um, the small towns like, you know, career development like, really isn't that interesting a, a topic. And people don't see that as the pinnacle in life um whilst if you, you know if you in a huge uh, urban hub like london like career development is almost all people uh think about and all they want to talk about like a kind of joke with my friends from university like you know you go to a, an event in london whether it's a, a house party or a dinner party or you, know, you, you meet someone at a, a bar and the first question people always ask you is no what do you do and um, and that's just not a question that people really ask um in in a lot of the rest of the uk like if you meet someone in a in a pub in morley like there's a good chance they never ask you at any point in the conversation what you do for work because it's just not the way that people kind of relate to other individuals and again there's positive and negatives to that and i, I enjoy coming back to that uh, at certain times and sort of being able to relax and like not have to play into that whole identity and narrative around you know, being a entrepreneur but at the same time um, it's it's also probably one of the reasons why you know, there are some of those you know, cultural things that hold people back in terms of if, if if people sort of spoke a bit more about you no know, career development and work, maybe it would inspire people to do different kinds of kind of stuff. So there's, there's again there's a, there's a flip side to, to everything, but I, I do like coming back. I want to ask one quick question around some of the investments that I've seen you made. You're an investor and hates the kind of neutral pick. Uh, Pill, right? Yeah, so I've done some sort of micro investments in, um, in in other startups, and 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 the reason for that, in many ways, was to kind of keep my own uh, brain uh, sharp in terms of I'm constantly caught up in like what I'm doing as a as a founder, but actually being able to you know look at other other companies and sort of put my uh, investor hat on is is useful in terms of my own stuff that i'm doing in terms of it helps me to think more like the sort of person who would invest in in my company potentially and sort of analyze my business model and way of working from the from the outside so um so it's, yeah I've, I've made some like very small investments in other other startups and it's it, it's great to sort of see the journey of other companies and um and, and see how founders operate and, and the main thing i've seen is that you can grow a company in, in many different ways. Like I've, I've always been a massive advocate for the working in the office. And I, I think, um, I think the office has loads of benefits in terms of creating uh, a culture of belonging and creativity, but Heights, for instance, that you mentioned is a completely remote uh, company and always has been and has built an incredible culture around being remote. And that's no very different way of running a company to the way that I run zero gravity but it's, it's interesting to see uh two completely different ways of doing things uh both both yield results i love it mate the last question that i was formally going to ask you which i'm not going to ask you now because i already know the answer would be what's next for joel but you don't seem to want to know that the answer to that i mean you probably know what's immediately next for joel but in terms of long term you don't have an answer for that so if i were to flip the question and ask something a bit different and more, more of a takeaway for the listeners or an action point for them to, to work on. In terms of the intersection between personal responsibility, social mobility, and self-development, is there any kind of universal 
pieces of advice that you would give someone who was once like Joe Seddon and uh, in a town like a place like Morley? Uh, is there any sort of universal truths or advice that you would give him to to give him a hand up and not hand out? Um, there's, there's so many things I wish I could tell my younger self that would have made my journey so much uh, easier. I, I think in terms of a couple of the really key ones, um, I, I, I had to sort of battle with perfectionism uh, for a lot of my journey because I, I'm everyone sort of says it right, but um, I, I've always been a perfectionist and I had a, a vision in my mind. I wanted to create reality that reflected that but ultimately like if you're starting off from a socially mobile background and you've got no resources it's very difficult to create something that's perfect and you have to just learn over time to be the kind of arch pragmatist um and and just find ways to get to the next point even if it's the unconventional route because if, if you're constantly trying to create the sort of perfect ideal you're just never going to get there if you don't have any resources and that is the blunt reality of the journeys of a lot, a lot of socially mobile people you have to be super pragmatic so that is one thing i wish i could tell my younger self and then i mean the other one that I, which is connected to that is just about being relentless um there, there was often times when you know, i was like you know growing zero gravity where i was i was doing loads of stuff and i thought this is going to transform the business and it, it just didn't come off in terms of stuff that I thought was going to work just just didn't didn't have the immediate results that I thought it was gonna gonna have and then out of nowhere something that I thought was never going to lead to anything turns into something massive and I, I think that just shows that you can never predict sometimes when the next great leap forward is going to be and you just got to put yourself in the position where you're actually on the pitch and and that means just being relentless um so so again I, I think that's super important because i think you're conditioned by the education system to sort of have a really clear cause and effect relationship which is no i do this and this is going to happen but actually the way the world works when you get out of education is the, the the relationship between cause and effect is only really apparent after the fact like i can look back now as a 25 year old and tell you the things that enabled me to get to this point and point out the three or four factors but when i was doing it it didn't seem like that at all um so um you just gotta be on the pitch and just be be relentless because the, the leap forwards do not come when you expect or where you expect but if you keep going they, they will come joe this has been an amazing podcast i really appreciate your time like i said at the beginning you're someone that i've hugely admired and i've been so grateful and lucky to have had touch points with you already i'm so glad that we can make this happen and especially leave it on such a like pragmatic note as well i'm always trying to be informative and give takeaways on the podcast so i'm glad that we could end and the podcast by doing that and thank you for being so vulnerable and thank you for sharing your story um i'm just so delighted that we're connected so if anyone wants to connect with you or the, the zero gravity platform either to become a mentor or a mentee where's the best uh place that people can find you uh, just ping me a LinkedIn. Um, always answer messages on LinkedIn. Doesn't need to be a, an essay. Just uh, something super short will will do. And actually, that reminds me of another piece of advice I'll give very very quickly, which is uh, I just be audacious. Message people on LinkedIn who you would never think would message you back or get in contact with you because especially if you're somebody who's from a socially mobile background and you've got a great story of defying the odds people will be interested in helping you. So um, so like, if, if you've listened to this episode and you think um, 
what I've done is interesting or relates to what you're doing in some way, please do message me. But also think of four or five people much further on their journeys than me who you can also message because you'll be surprised about who responds to you. 100%. And thank you for offering such kindness. And I can reiterate that because this whole podcast, I didn't have a single network. I had one person as a lined up guest before I started this podcast. And it's just had a compound interest, snowball avalanche effect. This Use this podcast and use Joe's story as uh, proof of concept of that. And Joe, thank you for sharing that. And I really hope that some, at least one person reaches out uh, and shares their thank you to, to you or, or reaches out to four or five other people too. Um, yeah, thank you for this privilege, Joe. What an episode. Great. Good stuff, David. Thanks for having me. What another great episode with another great guest, Joe Seren. Please do check him out wherever you can find him online and sign up to be a mentor on Zero Gravity. We can all be mentors and we can all impact the lives of disadvantaged young people or less privileged young people, once like me. I really hope you enjoyed this episode. Thank you for sticking along this far. Remember, this episode is sponsored by Vibe and DMAC gets you a really great discount on a really great breakfast or lunch or dinner. I have it at numerous times of the day, but trust me, Vibe is the shit. Sorry for swearing. Take care. See you in the next one.